Manchester United can afford to have 50 and 60 million pound failures. Clubs a little bit behind them can't afford to do that. We've seen what's happened at Everton. Their recruitment policy has been volatile. I think that's the politest way to describe it. And that has has actually then caused them problems in the sense that they can't comply with financial fair play. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. I'm your host Owen Connolly. Hope you are well. Uh, we are going to be talking today about the business of soccer's transfer market. Europe's January transfer window is wide open at the moment and player recruitment is a fascinating, flummoxing, maddening and pretty much unique part of the sports economy. There's a lot to make sense of guiding us through the whole thicket of it. We have I think three Sports Pro podcast newcomers. I might be wrong in one case, but uh, Sam Agini is a sports business correspondent at the Financial Times. Hello, Sam. Hi. Great to be here. Great to have you with us. Great to welcome as well Kieran Maguire, football finance lecturer at Liverpool University and co-host of the Price of Football podcast. Hello, Kieran. Hi, Owen. Looking forward to this. Yep. And rounding out a very distinguished group of guests, we have Daniel G, partner in the sports group at Sheridan's law firm and author of Done Deal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. Hello, Daniel. It's a longer title than yours, Kieran. Sorry. <laughs> it's a longer title than most, to be fair, but it gives everybody a good sense of uh, what perspective you're going to be bringing to the conversation, Dan. Um, we've got a lot to get through. And I think that, you know, there's so many interesting parts to how the transfer market works and doesn't work and some of the behavior incentivizes and some of the uh, ways in which it acts on other parts of the football business. But let's talk first of all, Sam, about this January, because the January transfer window is a bit of a curate's egg at the best of times. And I think the last two years, probably with the pandemic, has acted differently, even if the rest of the transfer market in the summer, there was some adjustment. But really, the two Januaries we've seen very different kind of behaviours from uh, from Europe's clubs. That's uh, that's right, Owen. And I think um, to to prefix this, um, yes, activity is low, but that that can just be the case in January. It's a difficult time to get business done. It's the middle of the season. Clubs can be more reluctant to let players go when the it's it's all to play for um, in terms of you know qualifying for European places which guarantees big you know big big revenues if you can make it so shuffling the squad often isn't uh the best approach in january covid has exacerbated that uh the last uh january window was was pretty quiet um but you know there was there was some hope we you know in at the end of december we we saw barcelona sign uh, Ferran Torres from Manchester City, and you might have thought that that, that could have triggered a few a, a few more deals. Um, you know that I think around the fifty million pound mark was quite sizable, um, but but the I guess we just it hasn't it hasn't followed. Um, so Barcelona, you know, they they might be saying they're back, but I think the big clubs in general have been have been very quiet. And and I, it tells you something. Then again, we it's 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 kind of the commentator's curse, isn't it? That that here I am saying that 
that it's very quiet that it's it's not over yet there's still time yeah i suppose there's two things that act on uh act as kind of you know stimuli in the in the january transfer window one is it is mid-season clubs will be accounting differently there's obviously a resourcing issue generally in the game at the moment with the shortfalls that most clubs are still dealing with um as a result of the pandemic um but you also have really good players tend not to move and clubs who have stable squads tend not to buy and clubs who have a, a particular trigger you know whether it's a relegation battle or an attempt to get into europe or you know get promoted that kind of last deal is that last piece of a puzzle that might might be a gamble worth taking those are the deals that tend to happen and there's a smaller pool of those anyway i suppose right exactly right and i think that's why um the signing of chris wood by by newcastle from burnley is is has has really caught the eye one you know newcastle obviously newly acquired by a consortium led by saudi arabia's sovereign wealth fund um, and really scrapping it out at, at the bottom, eliminated from the FA Cup against Cambridge United too. So they've, they've obviously signed a centre-forward from, from their rivals um, uh, in Burnley and, you know, in, in one stroke kind of uh, strength, strengthening their front line, but also damaging the prospects of a, of a rival. Um, I, the, one, the one thing I'll say on, on relegation, you know, this this year, uh, parachute payments should be intact. We we still don't know the outcome of um, there's a, there's a lot of strategic conversation about what happens to relegation candidates. So perhaps the price of rele- relegation could could change in future. But um, yeah, in terms of in terms of that signing, it's it's really interesting to see business done at, at a, uh, between two rivals like that. Dan, this always feels more of a factor in in January, perhaps where there's a more compressed time frame for for deals to happen. But it seems like a a football transfer can take a few hours, or it can take several months, and it's never quite clear why why either of those things is is the case. So let's uh, let's kind of set out the the non negotiables from a, a kind of employment law, uh, contract law perspective. What has to happen? for a deal to take place and for a player to move from one team to another? Well, I mean, the, the first is a, a willing buyer, seller and player, um, in truth. And, you know, I, I always try and term any type of transfer as sort of um, 3D chess to a degree, is that you have to play a number of games at the same time. The, the, the player's agent is effectively trying to work through um, dealing with the selling club to work out what the valuation might be, buying club to work out what um, they're willing to pay, um, transfer fee, uh, agent fee, wages, loyalty bonuses, signing on fees, everything else that comes with it. And the interesting thing, going back to Sam's point on Wood from um, Burnley to Newcastle is the nuance there was that it was effectively at least reported a release clause. So um, that release clause effectively meant that if a certain amount was triggered, um, that the selling club had to be able to then um, um, allow that registration to take place. So in a lot of cases, we're seeing more and more particular release clauses are put in so that the the selling club doesn't actually have that much autonomy to be able to um, reject a bid if a certain amount of money um, is forthcoming. So um, 
you know, in, in talking through the nuances of any deal, um, you know, there's at least four parties is the truth, which is buyer, seller, player, and agent, and everyone needs to be mildly um, unhappy at the outcome is tr in truth, because ultimately, usually in my experience, uh, compromise is usually key. But again, a lot of it can depend, you know, sometimes my, um, my insight can be a few days before a deal is done. Sometimes it can be in the months that uh, lead up to a deal is, you know, all parties always understand their leverage, their negotiation position, their bargaining power, when to push, when to pull, when to stop talking, you know, when to push further, etc. It's, it's, you know, you, we talk about it sometimes like football is, um, you know, a strange uh, business and it sometimes can be, but a lot of the cases, as I'm sure Kieran and, um, and Sam will uh, testify to, in some ways, it's just like any other business. You have to understand when you're in a strong position, weak position, and understand the stakeholders involved to get a deal over the line and what's the what's the timeline of a transfer deal typically is there a succession i mean i know that there are let's say soft rules that uh football authorities set that aren't always followed but what's the succession of people who get involved in a deal and and when well, again, it can be really tricky. Obviously, I've got lots of deals that in the past have gone along to transfer deadline day, which is not that much fun generally as a day or an afternoon as an evening, regardless of what Sky Sports say um, or, our, um, um, or our advertising as such. But a lot of the time, you know, I, I work with lots of different agents and players. A lot of the time, the deals are more or less done and can be done with all the blessings of all the parties in advance of the window even opening. So that actually it's on, you know, the first or second days of the window. Everything's been agreed. Everything is finalized and done. Like in, like in any you know business in any window in any type of trading period, what ends up happening is you know dominoes fall in particular ways. Again, I like you know Sam's point around um, you know City um, allowing um, Torres to go to to Barca. I wonder whether there's no domino effect in there. In a way, is that because City aren't buying small transfer using paying small transfer fees for transfers. So if they're going to buy a striker, it's going to be an 80, 90 million pound striker rather than the trickle down effect of a, a transfer, which is 5 million here or 10 million here or 15 million pounds there. So I think in a way, a lot of the time, the domino effect is not only if my first choice striker or left back isn't available, who, who do I go for next? But it's also if one big transfer occurs where perhaps a lower, <clears throat> a low to middle range Premier League club receives a significant amount of money. It's at that point then that those trickle down transfer fees can then start and people need to look for options and second options and third options. Mm. And of course, as, as I think we kind of touched on at the start, there's... Uh where you've got less activity and, and certain types of activity taken out of the market, you're, you're going to get less of those knock-on transfers, I guess, as a um, almost as a given. Um, Kieran, I want to bring you in at this point. Um, I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of the dysfunction in the transfer market and in terms of the dysfunction in uh, uh, clubs, resourcing of transfers and, and wages and all the rest of it. But um, just for now, what... If you were approaching it, all things being equal, how do or how should a club, um, how should clubs be assessing the value of their transfer fee or their transfer activity? Sorry, I think they got to look at it in terms of value added to the club as a whole, and from that they will be uh, aware that each additional place in the Premier League is, is worth two million pounds in, in uh, merit payments. 
Um, if it makes the club more popular, you pick up an extra £1 million each time you're chosen to uh, appear on live broadcast. So, so those are all factored in. And for the other 14, for want of a better phrase, they, they are also aware of the costs of relegation. And whilst we still do have parachute payments, uh, clubs are normally looking still in, in the region of a 50 to 60 million pound reduction in, in their revenue. So, so all of that factors in. And what the agents will be saying is that my client can uh, assist you in achieving some of those objectives. And that that is the uh, that's that's the position of the buying club. You know, can 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 this signing help us to achieve set objectives determined normally at board level, um, and the the manager will have a budget and, and will work to that. Mm. And I suppose this isn't going to be uniform by any stretch of the imagination, either across clubs or even within clubs and within different types of uh, of transfers that they do. But what's the balance between? You know, you buy a player and you have an asset that shows up on the books and you buy a player and you have a kind of performance boosting, um, you know, you could almost look at it, I guess, in terms of a normal business, like a service. This person is going to take us to this level, which will deliver all of these attendant benefits down the line. Well, I, th- I think there's two things to look at. Is, uh, is is the acquisition of the player a replacement cost? I you've you've sold somebody, so you know, you know Dan was referring to the the domino effect, um, and that that can kick in. So, is it a replacement or is it an enhancement? Um, or even thirdly, is it an investment? So, what what we are seeing is some clubs do have investment models. Uh, I, I think the the most uh, successful of those has been. Brentford Football Club, who who announced their financial results uh, on on the seventeenth of January, and uh, they 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 lost over a million pounds a week from their day to day activities, and they they plugged practically the whole of that from their ability to to recruit and development players with, with a view to selling them on. So so different clubs do have these different models, and then actually can, they they can sell that uh, to to the players themselves come to us look at all the players that we've developed who have then gone on to to play for uh, bigger clubs with more lucrative pay packets and and you can be part of this this process so it, it really does vary from club to club Manchester United is a destination club Brentford is a development club and uh, I, th- I think all the parties to a deal are aware of that how much is th- is that evolving when I'm thinking particularly in terms of clubs who have, as Manchester United do, as Arsenal do, um, have they, they might not be trading in the same way as a club like Brentford are. They have American owners who are interested in the valuation of the club. Um, you know, how much is that affecting the way that uh, the way that transfers are conducted, the way that certain players are thought of, perhaps as assets, the way that you know you might hang on to a player if you don't get. A, a fee, not because you then can't reinvest it, but because then that deflates kind of the asset book that, you, that is attached to your club. What what are some of the ways in which we're seeing that develop? Well, I think in the case of Manchester United, that they are an intriguing model to watch because they have signed many players on on deals, which could then contain um, a, an option to extend on, on behalf of the club. Uh, I think we've seen that with Paul Pogba. We've we've seen that. Um, with, with others as well, and what happens is as you reach that that final awkward 
12 months uh, or approaching that final 12 months of the contract if if the if, if the if the current club like the likes of Manchester United can hold on to the player by extending the contract then they will be start to uh, go out to the market and say, look, Paul Pogba's now got two years remaining on a contract, so therefore we're still going to to look for an enhanced value. So, so some clubs take that into consideration, um, whereas others will take the view that if we don't recoup the value of the player in in the first initial four years of the contract, then 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 we just have to go and take it on the chin. So we are seeing significant differences, and I think on the scale of one to ten between the, the likes of Roman Abramovich and Sheikh Mansour at one end of the scale, where the objective is purely focused on winning trophies, that that is the KPI that the owners focus on, and then you've got the likes of FSG and the Glazers at the other end of the scale, where the main KPI is financial return, and and, and that does have implications for the transfer market and the transfer approach taken by those clubs. Sam, one of the things that's happened, I mean, COVID has accelerated the the adaptations, I suppose, that that clubs have to put in place in order to fund transfers. Um, But it's been something that's been going on for probably over a decade, the implementation of financial fair play, the credit crunch even before that, uh, anxiety around, you know, rights fees perhaps slowing down um, over the medium term and TV income drying up. But you're, you're seeing clubs structure deals over five years, six years, and then particularly mid-ranking clubs who've just sold a really outstanding player who was a you know um, a, a huge competitive advantage for them, selling that fee on to a brokerage in order to get an, a, an upfront uh, lump sum. I mean, what are, what are some of the mechanisms that we're seeing emerge um, in that kind of intermediary space. Yeah, it's it, it's really interesting how how clubs just are always fighting for wiggle room on on their finances. Before COVID, um, there was this um, niche kind of lending market where you could you could sign a player um, and agree to receive the the from the other club the um, the cash and in installments over over time, maybe you know over over a period of two years at regular installments, that allows for um, an intermediary to step in and extend that finance more immediately um, to the club in in need of the cash. Um, so what's what's been interesting is that this market feels quite quiet right now in COVID. Um, you you would have thought that. There would be more, more, more of a dash for for cash, more, more financialization of um, transfer fees, um, basically allowing selling. Let me get this right: selling clubs to get the cash um, sooner, and uh, and an intermediary to to basically take a take a cut, um, but take on the the ability to receive that money from the uh, the, the buying club. Um, so I think it's been quiet because clubs, clubs simply have more pressing, more, more fundamental financial issues at, at play. You know, we've seen leagues such as, such as La Liga, um, in, you know, in Spain go to private equity to, to, to raise funds in a, on a league wide basis. Uh, we've seen clubs, um, I mean, you, you don't have to look far in the Premier League or, or elsewhere, sell stakes in themselves, or or just change ownership outright, 
Um, and what, what, what there's been, there's been a scramble for liquidity. You've also had uh, revolving credit facilities signed. That's basically just um, a loan that you can, you, you have it in place. You don't necessarily have to take money. It just, if you think about, about it with your bank account, you know, you, you might have an overdraft. It doesn't mean you use it. Um, and I think, I think, you know, speaking, speaking to bankers in, in this market, in this alternative financing market, some say it's, it has been quieter um, because, well, the, the, for one, the transfer market's quieter, but also there are just there are bigger financings happening out there. Dan, what's the impact of that sort of involvement of intermediaries? Does it, does it happen in separate phases? Is it a question of let's get all the funding in place, get the deal done, and then whatever clubs want to do in order to leverage that in the medium term? they can do or do you have to have some kind of legal basis to be able to continue in that vein as as you go on so i'm just checking you you mean so when you say intermediaries you're talking about the institutions that are uh upfront loaning the the money yes so mm. um it can happen in different ways in my experience that the first and most traditional way is is that um buyers and sellers, buyer, buying club, selling club does the deal. And as Sam mentioned, there's a couple of installments that are first anniversary, second anniversary, third anniversary of the deal, for example. And the club, the, the, the selling club wants to receive, you know, maybe second and third anniversary money within the next six months. And therefore, we'll take a discount um, ahead of that um, amount in order to receive most of those monies up front, which can have accounting benefits, as Kieran will no doubt be able to explain a lot better than I would. Um, the, the second that I've sometimes seen happen is when actually the buying and selling club um, will be negotiating and the, and the selling club will say, well, we're only doing the deal if we can make sure we get 75% upfront, for example. And at that 75% of the transfer fee upfront when the deal completes, for example. And in that instance, sometimes the, the buying club will go to the third party intermediary and say, okay, you need to help us finance this deal because they, the, the selling club wants 75% upfront. So they will be a part of um, the, the transaction process to a degree. And what can sometimes happen is is necessary when uh, the transfer agreement is being used basically as you know a type of financial instrument um, that um, there will need to be a clause without getting too legal, which gives the the right as necessary to assign the benefits of um, the monies to a third party institution, um, and that basically future proofs the the deal for that then to go ahead at the the appropriate time. But it's it's relatively common. It's it's more difficult. To, I say it's relatively common. It's relatively common when the buying clubs are gold plated clubs like premier, top Premier League clubs where there is little risk of default. The higher the risk of default, the higher the finance charge and the higher the risk of um, something happening, which means that uh, maybe the most established um, intermediaries slash institutions won't go near those types of deals. Um, when a selling club um, is receiving money from one of the big EPL clubs, usually um, that the cost is relatively reasonable of that transaction because the institution knows that um, the, the buying club is always going to be good for their money. Yeah, and I suppose on the other side of the coin, so to speak, if you are more of a mid-sized club and you're trying to structure a deal in that way at a certain point you lose the advantage if you're basically paying um higher rates in in fees and and all the rest of it um you know that intermediary part of the um of, of the whole process and we're, we're taking a step back probably and 
in the timeline here. But, you know, how much scaling up and scaling down is there within football clubs to get transfer deals done? Obviously, you come in, you're contracted as a, as a lawyer in order to, um, to get some of these deals over the line. Um, there will be, there are, of course, intermediaries representing all sides of a deal, sometimes a couple of times over, it seems. Um, but what what kind of how 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 are some of these transfer deals resourced? How much is done in house, and how much is done um, using third parties, and how much kind of concertinaing of of that effect is there across different deals? It's it's simply very much on a bit of an ad hoc basis. So um, you know the truth is sometimes with some of my clients, I come into the deals relatively late in the day. You know, it's the, it's the things I, I tend not to prefer doing, which is um, the agent phoning me and saying, oh, Dan, we've got the docs through. Can you just have a quick five minute, not five minute look, but two or three hour look. And um, we're looking at signing in about three or four hours. So just to give it the once over, which obviously is not the funnest part of the job, because then, um, you know, I'm basically the one telling them what they shouldn't sign up to and what needs to be negotiated, which is what no one wants. The much better way usually I prefer is, you know, working in partnership with the, uh, the agent and the player a few weeks before beforehand, you know, making sure everyone understands, you know, the risks and rewards of certain approaches to things of making sure all the regulations are adhered to, but more or less just the contract drafting, if it's the employment contract or the agent's um, um, contract or, you know, an image rights deal and all, all the various things. The other side of the coin also is, is that for a lot of the elite clubs that I'm negotiating against, the, the top Premier League clubs, all of them are, are very well resourced in terms of, you know, uh, in-house legal, um, directors of football, um, sporting directors, everything else that goes along with it. So, you know, there's there's quite a nuanced approach to negotiation on the commercial and the legal front. Um, and that doesn't take into account, you know, the, the agents that will be getting involved. And sometimes there can be agents for the selling club and the buying club. Um, uh, and the player and what they need at particular times. So, for example, one of the deals over COVID time, you know, I, um, you know, I use sometimes go to the training ground um, as a last resort, you know, just to go through the contract, see what it's like, make sure it's exactly what we thought was appropriate. But simple things like because of COVID protocols and everything else that was going on, you know, I, I wasn't able to go to the training ground. We had to do it remotely. So it just adds a few extra complexities into things. But, you know, on the whole, as you would imagine, from a risk-averse lawyer's perspective, we always like a little bit more time to be able to do things. Um, time is usually at a premium when it comes to me getting involved, unfortunately, which means, um, you know, a lot of time my role is actually um, being um, a risk advisor as well as a contracts advisor, so long as they understand sometimes the risks of doing things in particular ways. If a clause is going to say that or this is going to happen, then as long as everybody is okay, then that's the most important thing. What I'm really, really conscious about is not messing up the deal or saying no so many times that everyone walks away from the table so there's always a bit of a delicate balancing act as you can imagine well we've got the the building blocks in place i suppose in in uh, in part one uh, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to look at some of the wider behavioral trends in the transfer market and some of the ways in which it can be reformed that's coming up just after this Before we go on, just updating you all with a few announcements from the world of Sports Pro. First of all, final reminder on the pod about Ignition, the new digital event and platform for sports tech, innovation and investment. It's just days away now, taking place on the 26th and 27th of January. If you still need to register or find out more, head to ignition.sport. That's ignition.sport. 
www.sport.com. Tons of really exciting reasons to check it out. We'll have a podcast accompanying the event next week as well. A little further away on the calendar, but still approaching fast, is Sports Pro's next in-person event, Sports Pro OTT USA is back leading the sports broadcast disruption and this time we'll be in New York, New York. City Field, home of the Mets, is the venue on the 8th and 9th of March. We've got high-level speakers and some fantastic networking opportunities and you can sign up for the latest updates and register for a 20% discount at sportspro-ottusa.com now. That's sportspro-ottusa.com Finally, another little note to say that we've been nominated in the best sports business category at the Sports Podcast Awards. Voting is still open and we'd really appreciate your support. You can register at sportspodcastawards.com and get behind us. Okay, that's all of that for now. Let's get back to this week's conversation. Welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. Um, Kieran, we talked in part one about some of the dynamics uh, or some of the, some of the specifics, I think, of the, of the transfer market. But let's talk about the, the broader dynamics. I mean, people are always making analogies between the transfer market and other business operations, other uh, other marketplaces. It's a strange one because it's both an asset market and a talent and labor market. And there's all sorts of interest being served and and they really can vary huge amounts within the within similar parts of of the football world um is there a is there an analog is there a comparable market that that transfers can correspond to that you compare them to I think I think it is quite difficult because it's the effective commoditization of young young men and their talent which doesn't appear elsewhere as far as the employment market is concerned. Um, perhaps you, you could use it in, in terms of the, the entertainment industry where you've got, uh, you've got your A&R departments going into uh, clubs and trying to spot the, you know, the next Arctic Monkeys, the next Foo Fighters, whoever it's going to be. Um, and I think that ages me in terms of my, my musical experience. Um, but, uh, you know, for, for every, for every, one that you do find, there's 10 that, that don't make the mark. And uh, to a certain extent, that's what we see in the transfer market. There's there's plenty of clubs who are recruiting squad players who the fans actually never get to see, especially in the Premier League, because um, those players don't achieve the, 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 the level of uh, of performance that the clubs had hoped that they would do so um, and and that's increasingly common again I think we need to split it between uh, the different markets in the Premier League itself you, you you've got the the big six the greedy six whatever you want to call them um, who who were behind Super League and Project Big Picture and then you've got the other clubs who who have to be much much more cautious and what we are seeing in terms of those markets is that um, it, it's it's the risk of failure Manchester United can afford to have 50 and 60 million pound failures clubs a little bit behind them can't afford to do that we've seen we've seen what's happened to Everton uh, Everton has spent over half a billion pounds on the Farhad Mashiri. Uh, the, their, their recruitment policy has been 
volatile. I think that's the politest way to describe it uh, in, in terms of the level of success. And that has, has actually then caused them problems in the sense that they can't comply with financial fair play. Whereas Manchester United, Liverpool, Chelsea have got so much wiggle room because they've got the additional revenues from big commercial deals, because they've to a large extent, they're, they're pretty much guaranteed European football each year that those additional revenues allow them to to keep uh, to, to keep panning for gold, in, in which which you can't do uh, ad infinitum below that particular tier. So it, it is a unique market. Um, it, it provides um, a, a ridiculous amount of column inches um, for for what is actually tend to be relatively few transfers. If, if you if, if every transfer that has been uh, hinted at or, or 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 exclusively revealed in the papers actually took place, uh, I, football players would be uh, certainly we're clocking up crazy numbers of air miles. I guess there's a degree of conflation with um, with with the market and player salaries as well. But what sort of behaviour does transfer activity encourage among clubs? Because Again, you have a, you can talk about the big six in the Premier League and the rest. You also then have um, the clubs in the Football League and, and other parts of the professional pyramid or lower parts of the professional pyramids in, in other European countries where, you know, player recruitment and sales are can be a huge part of their business strategy over five, ten year periods. And it might be that it takes you a few years to find that one player who you sell on, but that kind of keeps you in clover for... Uh, a couple of years thereafter so it's a, it's a funny thing with the football business where you, you have people saying oh it's a media business it's a sponsorship business it's becoming this more holistic kind of direct consumer business etc cetera, etc cetera. but then you have half or even more than half of your economic activity is in this kind of volatile unpredictable slightly kind of amorphous space um you know we're, we're, how is that all of that planning out in 2022 um, I think if we move outside of the Premier League, um, at least a third of the clubs in Leagues 1 and 2 have have squads that cost zero. So therefore, those, those particular clubs, they are relying on loan signings, they're relying on academy, they're relying on players uh, being out of contract elsewhere and being recruited by, by the club in question. So uh, that has been amplified as a result of COVID. If we then move into the championship, the net spend in, in the uh, uh, in the championship in 2020 was £5 million spread between 24 clubs. Um, you know, so, so what we were seeing there is that because of the constraints, uh, the, the the championship doesn't have the benefits of a very lucrative TV deal. So therefore, it has to to rely on its other income sources. Um, and clubs were only buying once they had sold. So it was very much sell to buy, um, and, and it was a replacement model based uh, model approach, um, combined with utilization of the. Um, utilization of the loan market but the loan market this season um, because of COVID and you know, as we have seen many matches have been postponed as a result of COVID um, I think in terms of this this present window 
the, the Premier League clubs will be very reluctant to let player cl- players go out on loan because what happens if your if your centre forward gets COVID and your second or third choice striker, who perhaps under normal circumstances you would say, well, we'll we'll let him go on loan to the Championship. We can recoup we can recoup a fee, we can recoup a period of, a proportion of his wages. Um, that that doesn't look too clever. You've only got to look to to see what happened with Arsenal um, uh, over the past few days and the amount of criticism that they've taken. Sam, on a more strategic level, what are some of the ways in which we're seeing clubs grapple with that central problem that, you know, transfer activity and talent is very expensive and sometimes unpredictably so. And you have these other high minded ideas of, uh, of what direction you want to take a club into. You also have, you know, supporters and you've got to deliver a degree of value to them, of course, because that's kind of what well, should be at the heart of the whole thing. Um, what, are, what are some of the strategies that we're seeing? emerge in that respect yeah i think i think kieran kieran's already touched on this but there is uh you know there's clubs like brentford that are really placing a lot of stock by um data and uh youth development so i think i I do think it's 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 really interesting how i mean there's there's essentially farms of, of of players out there um uh, if you if you develop the talent internally, you can you can play this transfer market. I mean, th- this is this is what conventionally what happened. You could play the transfer market in that you develop the talent, you sell on sell on for big fees, and then you you've got more players coming through, and it, and and hopefully you stay in the division uh, you're in or or go up if you're not at the very top. Um, it w- I found it interesting with the recent acquisition of Southampton as well. Um, um, by uh, Dragan Solak, uh, well, Sport Republic, a new investment vehicle backed by him. Uh, he's a Serbian media magnate. Um, I think what was interesting is that they they again were um, were were, dis- were discussing the potential of of data um, and and also highlighting Southampton's own um, record for for producing talent. And I think I think um, we all remember Gareth Bale there. So I really think that, that there's, you know, people forget that football's come a long way in a, in a short period of time. Not every club is, is uh, as sophisticated or as, as uh, professional as you might expect. So there's, there's a, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of scope for, for improvement. And looking at that bigger picture, what, I mean, I can open this one up. What are, what would be the first thing that you would change about the way that the transfer market is structured, we've seen various kind of kind of interventions on a FIFA level, um, particularly when it comes to licensing of agents. But you know that doesn't necessarily change everything all that much. Um, what what would be a, a big? We'll start with you, Sam, because you're you're on at the moment. But <laughs> what would be a, um, a a significant step towards making the the whole thing a bit more coherent? There's a lot said about agents and how they can they can act for multiple parties in a in a transfer, and I think that conflicts of interest are are one area. Um, you know, it, it's I, I guess the the issue is that it can it can appear unsightly when one agent is taking a fee from two clubs and potentially, um, you know, and obviously the. the the player is expecting the agent to, to act in their best interest. So, so I, I think that's one one area that's that is being looked at. Um, 
we've also, you know, there's talk in, in England about, um, about uh, taxing transfers uh, more heavily at a, at a certain level. And I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure whether that deters these, these big, big transfers to the point where, where uh, actually you won't redistribute that income to the rest of the game. Um, but given, given how much clubs seem to be willing to spend, per, perhaps not. Um, I suppose the risk there is that, that you, uh, you put Premier League clubs at a disadvantage to their rivals across Europe. But, but let's not forget, there is, there's a wider issue here. And, and this goes for the clubs who in the past have made good profits from, from, from selling players. It's that there's there's a lot more sellers than buyers right now. You know, every big club has had has had their transfer kitty kind of uh, demolished just by the the cash that they've needed for for operations and for paying players basically during the during the pandemic. Um, so yeah, one one other thing is um, we uh, we've even had some uh, some transfer gossip in the FT with uh, with Raheem Sterling. Telling us about the move recently, and I think I think Kieran was right earlier when he said that that uh, there's a lot of transfers that don't happen. So, yeah, a lot of speculation about what about the future structure of the market as well as the players who move around it. Yeah, and I think you hit upon something there, which is that football generally, club football in, in particular, is difficult to organise and difficult to uh, regulate because you have pretty much every country in the world active at a, a, a high level in the sport or at least a professional level and you have clubs run as independent organizations within leagues that they might be members of but you know the leagues don't necessarily have um dominion over them legally even if they do kind of within the context of the competition oh and i might just make one point as well which uh, just follows on with with sam's if that's okay which is you know i'm not sure if anyone else saw um i think it was friday night football where neville and carragher were speaking to paul barber and um steve parish about uh the fan-led review and and you know if anyone wants to read more and hear more about it kieran over the last few months has, has on the podcast has been been brilliant in setting out all the different issues has been speaking to all the powers that be involved and it's a it's a it's a brilliant insight generally so congrats on kieran on on that but um so a couple of the important points that stem from that, I think, are obviously things to do with um, an independent regulator, but I think more broadly, the sort of a micro on an individual club basis and a macro perspective. And I think the macro perspective is cost control generally, which is one of the the, the, the points of the fan-led um, review, one of the outcomes. Um, and I think on a micro level what we actually then are talking about is the ability of clubs to be able to live within their means and spend sustainably and appropriately and if we're going back to basics with you know rationalization for the transfer market you know in the days gone by where you know owners could come in and spend whatever they want and that would obviously inflate the the market but cause problems for other clubs as well i think what's probably part of a very important and interesting discussion which is happening and is going to continue happening over the next period of time the question of whether um you know what uefa is going to do with their financial fair play rules cost control rules what the premier league and other national leagues are thinking of, of doing and parish made a really good point where he said um you know actually the premier league did have 
equivalent of um, uh, a wage cap, which was, uh, you know, clubs couldn't spend seven million pounds more than they could have done in the year before. That was called short-term cost control. The fascinating thing about the discussion I found, one of the things that uh, Parrish and Barber were talking about was whether there was an actual need for regulatory intervention, i.e. an independent regulator taking over responsibility for these type of things. And when Neville and Carragher were asking the questions, well, do they need an independent regulator? Parish and Barber, to an extent, I think, used, um, they said the EFL couldn't regulate anything, and therefore that's why cost control didn't happen. And they also said, well, we had cost control in the Premier League, but that got voted out. In a way, I was fascinated by that approach, because in a way, I think that vindicates the, the, the fan-led review to a degree, which was, you know, clubs have difficulty in agreeing on fettering their ability to be able to do things. That, that's the, the simple fact. Um, whether that's right, wrong or indifferent, they're members associations and have that right to be able to do that. But I think now when the government is now becoming more involved and putting recommendations on the table, I think it's fair to say that football, the football family has a hard time agreeing with things. They're having a hard time agreeing with parachute payment reforms now, never mind other types of elements. So for me, the fascinating thing that will happen is going to happen is how actually the powers that be, i.e. the clubs, the powerful clubs and Premier League clubs in total, are going to be pushing back hard against this independent regulation because if it's what sounds like it's going to happen, the independent regulator potentially might have quite a lot of power um, to be able to regulate specifically, specifically on cost control. And as a result, that will, I presume, bring greater, as you said, um, a rush, rationalization or rationality to, to club spending and transfer fees. I agree with a lot with the guys have said. Uh, I hold my hand up here. I'm a Brighton Hove Albion fan. I was I was physically at that match and, and I saw the, the people being interviewed at the time. Um, Brighton lost sixty three million pounds last year. Uh, now this is a this is a bottom third Premier League club and they lost sixty three million pounds and, and nobody batted an eyelid. Um, and what what we have is uh, in terms of uh, the regulation of transfers and the regulation of spending is we, we are now in a situation where the vast majority of football clubs uh, in, in English football are one owner away from oblivion. And we, we've seen that happen at Bolton Wanderers, where their, where their owner became very ill. He'd put £175 million in. We've seen what's happened at Bury. We, we've seen what's happened at Derby when the owner just lost interest. And, and they decided to walk away from the club, putting it into administration. Um, and that's that's what self-regulation gives you. It, it's uh, self-regulation gives self-interest. And uh, I, I can understand it from the club's point of view, because as an individual, given the given the choice between somebody else scrutinizing me and somebody not scrutinizing me, I choose the non-scrutinized version. And I think we all would in terms of my professional career as, as, as a teacher or, or whatever it's going to be, um, you know, I'd rather just do my own thing. And, and uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want a third party who, who I might consider to know less about the industry than I do um, advising me on how to behave. But um, I think in terms of the market itself, we, we have mentioned agents. Um, FIFA don't like agents. Uh, pundits don't like agents. The uh, social media doesn't like agents. The one thing I don't hear is football players complaining about agents. You know, and, and you would think that if they were as bad as uh, they are made out to be, that you know, the, the person who actually physically employs them on, a, on an annual basis might, might complain about this. But 
I, I'm not seeing it. Uh, in, in terms of uh, the the market itself, uh, I think there are ways of of addressing uh, the inflation that we have, and it's it's simply going back to old old school credit measures. If if you want to sign if you want to sign a player's registration, you've got to put down a an eighty percent deposit, and and that gets paid on on the first day of the deal. All of a sudden, we, we've got a change in the market. Um, and, and and we move back to a, a more cautious approach. Manchester United, four or five years ago, they ended up with uh, transfer creditors outstanding. They they had they owed other clubs two hundred and fifty eight million pounds, a quarter of a billion pounds, and that's why Jose Mourinho was unable to spend in the market because the the board realised that they had they their their transfer strategy had been based on maxing out the credit card and uh, you know. I, I, as as somebody that in my youth used to think that maxing out on my credit card was a good strategy for uh, for a young person to live by, I, I I learned a lesson, and I think football clubs need to learn that lesson as well. What are the obstacles towards proper standardisation where you have, you know, a central register of a player's value, and it's a little bit like they do in in La Liga, but of course that is a, a maximum value that is really meant to be prohibitively high. Um, but what 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 are the barriers to something that is just completely standardised that moves away from this sort of barter and exchange uh, culture that's built up around football for for generations? Is it just that you have this esoteric industry that's just created around this and it's it's too hard to dismantle it? Is it the regulatory complexity? What 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 stands in the way of that? Do you think? I don't think there's any desire from it from the football industry itself. Um, especially that, that we, we have clubs who are ambitious. The, the rules which have been introduced by La Liga are very good, I think, from a financial control perspective. The downside in relation to that is that it locks in the existing gaps between clubs. And the one thing I think that the Premier League has going for it, although, uh, again, the people behind Super League and Project Big Picture did want to dismantle that, is is a degree of um, sporting merit, you know, that, that one club can beat another. You know, the fact that Crystal Palace can go to the Etihad and beat Manchester City is fantastic. And, and that's what the big clubs want to take away. They want to destroy that. Well, it's a fascinating perspective to end a, a really interesting and um, and detailed conversation, guys. There is enough to cover entire books and entire podcast series, but unfortunately we've run out of time for this podcast itself. But I will take the time to say thank you very much to Sam Agini. Thank you. To Daniel G. Pleasure. And Kieran's written the book on it. It's not uh, both of us have, to be fair. So can we can we plug it? Is that too awkward now? Uh, no, go ahead, Kieran. Uh, I can't remember what the book's called. <laughs> <laughs> we can put something in the episode notes if you like. Um, but thank you as well to Kieran Maguire. Thank you. I haven't I haven't written a book, but I can plug the FT's uh, football um, football summit in in March. So there you go. You certainly can. Do we um, get a discounted rate, Sam, Kieran, and I for appearing on the podcast now? Or... <laughs> Let's take that offline. <laughs> second, second, and third of March is that, Sam? That that is that is right. Yes. Hopefully, we'll well maybe maybe we'll all see each other there. But I think yeah, this is definitely a conversation to take offline at this point. Um, thanks to all of you for listening. Hope you've. Uh, enjoyed that conversation and we will catch up with you again very soon bye bye